How much should we blame China for COVID-19? This week, I talk with Havoc Journal owner Charlie Faint and his father, retired Colonel Don Faint, about the origins of COVID-19 and how much responsibility China should have, both for the outbreak and the worldwide spread of the virus. Spoiler alert, they're going to be pretty responsible. But anyway, uh, this was one of those weeks where the subject of COVID-19 had really hit its peak clickbaitiness in the news cycle. So we needed to discuss it, and it was about time we discussed it. And then Charlie's dad was visiting him, so it seemed like a perfect time to have his dad on. And in all honesty, I feel bad because I feel like I did Don a, a real disservice. He's had a long and fascinating career in the Army, none of which had to do with China. And so we threw COVID-19 at him, which... In all honesty, he he felt like he didn't. He was like, "Well, you know, this kind of isn't my lane and all that." In all honesty, though, he says more in a few words that succinctly and clearly sums up complex issues in ways that I'll spend ten minutes pontificating and doing sidebars and putting caveats around stuff and all that. So. I think he did great, and it was really fun to talk with him, even about something that was not his lane. Um, and then, of course, we get into all a whole, whole bunch of stuff, the piece they wrote for Havoc Journal and a bunch of stuff about his career, because he can't have a guy like Don Faint on and not get into that. Uh, but the end result is an episode that goes way beyond the mask debate and the school closures and the state guidelines and all that. Who can we blame, Trump or Cuomo or Fauci or DeSantis or... All, all that stuff that you kind of always hear about. And we try to focus on the true villain, the true Dr. Evil, Dr. Moriarty puppet master that unleashed COVID-19 on the world and is desperately hoping that we all forget that they were behind this. And of course, I'm talking about China and the CCP specifically. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is The Weekly Havoc. Welcome to this week's episode of the Weekly Havoc, a roundtable discussion of the week's events by the staff and writers at Havoc Journal. Colonel, retired Don Faint, is a Special Forces qualified U.S. Army military intelligence officer and native of Huntsville, Alabama. He has had a lot of conventional assignments, including G2 of the 82nd Airborne Division. He's also team leader in 5th Special Forces Group, and on the intelligence staff of JSOC, Joint Special Operations Command. He also commanded the organization commonly referred to as Task Force Orange. His last assignment before retirement was as Chief of Intelligence for SOCOM, the U.S. Special Operations Command. He's both Ranger and Special Forces qualified. He's a master parachutist. He's a veteran of Panama and Desert Storm. He's also a graduate of the University of North Alabama, which he attended on a basketball scholarship, and where he still holds the record for most consecutive starts, most games fouled out, and most personal fouls. So, Don, what, what does that mean? Were you just a prick on the court? Were you really good? Were you really bad? Were you like the, the bruiser of the team? What was your role on the team exactly? Uh, well, it, uh, I didn't believe in any uncontested rebound or any uncontested <laughs> shot. And moving uh-huh. somebody out of your way was a skill that uh, we practiced often. <laughs> okay, fair enough. 
that seems like there's more stuff to dive into there in a minute. Okay. Uh, but I want to finish this up. Uh, Don also holds a master of business administration from Boston university. He's graduated the U S army war college now lives with his wife and childhood sweetheart, Susan faint in Madison, Alabama. Don, welcome today. Well, thank you for having me. No, it's my pleasure. And as I told you, uh, before we started the show, we're not going to do full justice to your resume today. Uh, and in the near future, it would be great to talk to you at length about everything you've done in your life. Uh, unfortunately, today we're going to – the Chinese have taken over our show and we're going to have to dive into them and their shenanigans. But it's a pleasure to have you on to talk about it with us. Charlie Faint, as everyone that listens to the show on a regular basis should know and could, could probably recite with me as I say this – but if you're new to the show and you haven't heard this before, Charlie Fain is an active duty Army intelligence officer. He is the deputy director of the Modern War Institute at West Point. He has previous assignments throughout special operations, including JSOC, seven deployments, in addition to operational tours in Egypt, the Philippines, and South Korea, three master's degrees, one from Yale, currently a PhD candidate, executive director of the Second Mission Foundation, and owner of the Havoc Journal. Hi, Charlie. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me back. It's great to have you back. I missed you last week. I don't know what to do without my shotgun here. It's too much me. Too much talking for me. I don't think there's anything, uh, nothing such as too much Chris. So, yeah, let's. Uh... <laughs> I think my wife would disagree, but I appreciate you saying that. Um, okay, well, listen, let's jump right into it. So, for this week's topic, how much should we blame China for COVID 19? So let me just set the stage a little bit by saying I have steadfastly re resolved never to mention COVID on this show uh, up until today, even when I had COVID, because honestly, it bores the hell out of me as a topic. I The mask debate and Trump and Cuomo and Fauci and all, I, I, you know, I, I can't get too fired up over it. I, I get it. I get the passions involved. I get how serious some of these issues are. I get the school closures. I get all those moving parts. I understand how important they are. I'm not trying to minimize them. I just, I, 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 it doesn't get my blood up. And for when I put on this show, it's not something that I really want to go to the mattresses over. So I have been bored senseless by COVID. I've been inconvenienced by COVID, but I didn't really want to get into it. That said, this aspect of COVID, I think, does actually fire me up and I think is the most important aspect of COVID to talk about, which is who's to blame. And in a way, that's the topic that most Americans have been trying to get at. But as Americans and as anybody in any country does, I think people have talked about it in a very myopic, solipsistic way where they look at the people around them, their natural enemies, whether politically or in their local governments, that they want to blame for school closures or masks or whatever. And that's all fine. That's all fair game. But that misses the big Dr. Moriarty behind all this. That misses who actually started this. And the culprit, I think it is fair to say, is China. And we and if Charlie or Don disagree, we can talk about that. But I also think that it's important to just clarify what we mean when we say China, because as everything else in today's world goes, people immediately see that as a dog whistle for some form of racism and what have you. Obviously, it's not racism. The biggest threat to China is the Chinese people, and uh, China fears its people as well it should because it has a rich history of amazing people with amazing culture. But the CCP uh, and the Chinese Communist Party is evil. And I have no problem saying that. 
Uh, again, and I will debate that with our guests if, if we need to, but I think that just needs to be stipulated up front that this is not about a race. It is very much about a particular nation state's government, and that is who we're going after. So when we talk about the Chinese, that is generally what we're talking about. I think it's ludicrous I even have to say that nowadays, but this is the temperature that we're in these days. So uh, let me just stipulate that at the outset. So I think there's two components to how much of the blame China should uh, should shoulder when it comes to COVID-19. I think one is the crime or the outbreak itself, and the other is the cover-up of the outbreak. Let's first focus on the outbreak itself. So there are essentially three theories that I think most people have thrown around for how we got COVID-19. One is that it was a natural outbreak that occurred from bats in the Yunnan province, not the Wuhan province, but the Yunnan province, uh, where it had been, it had occurred or something similar to it had occurred in a mine shaft in 2012. So there was the thought, okay, maybe this is just a natural outbreak from bats in this mine shaft again down in Yunnan, and that spread throughout China. That's one theory. Second theory is that it came from the bats at the Wuhan wet market. We probably heard that. I think we heard that a lot early on that, oh, this wet market's there. They got a lot of nasty, disgusting, dead animals uh, of exotic natures for people to eat and try out. And um, maybe the bats came from there. That's the second theory. The third one is the is the famous lab leak theory that the virus leaked out of a lab. We won't get into yet. Not, we won't get into whether or not it was purposely leaked from a lab accidentally leaked from a lab and what exactly was leaked from a lab was it a bioweapon was it just natural you know uh testing uh trying to develop antibodies for a bat coronavirus what exactly leaked we'll get into that in a little bit but those are kind of all the emanations that come from the lab leak theory of those three theories and we can dive into each one in turn but of those three just off the top of your head charlie what's pick your poison which one do you buy the most yeah, Chris, my dad and I were actually talking about this earlier today. It, it's I don't think anybody really knows what really happened, but I think the world is waking up now that we haven't been told the truth by the, the CCP, the, the, the Chinese Communist Party. And I think the, around the world, people are waking up to the threat of the CCP, not only through uh, misinformation, disinformation, lab leaks, covid but also their aggression in the South China Sea, their debt draft diplomacy, all the stuff we talked about on the show before. And what was particularly meaningful and timely today for us, Chris, and when we're, when we're thinking about the Wuhan virus and how that originated, um, my dad and I went to pick up Emily from her, for her job up at Legoland uh, this, this morning. And we stopped in Monroe, which you've, you know where that is. You've been there several times. We went to the Walmart and came out. And there was a convoy of anti-CCP protesters. I'm probably going to write an article about this. I'll send you the pictures. Emily took a, a group of pictures on it. And it was talking about the threat of the CCP. And what was interesting is we were looking at these. They were all marshaled in the, in the, the Walmart parking lot. And then as we left, we actually were part of their caravan for a little while because they're all going in the same direction. They all appear to be ethnically Asian and, and probably, I'm guessing, they were Chinese. So I think that, that they're helping get the word out uh, about the threat from China, not only from viruses, not only for against Uyghurs, but, but everything that's going on in there. So if I had to pick between the three, 
um, and understanding I'm not an expert on this, and but I have read quite a bit about it, I would guess it was a leak from the lab. And that's something that came up several uh, months ago, a year ago, and it was shut down because people said it was racist or there's no way it could happen, etc. But it's been amazing the last couple of weeks, it seems to have been a turnaround. So if I had to pick between those three options and recognizing there's any number of options that we're not considering, I think the lab leak at this point, knowing what we know right, right now, is probably more likely than, than the other two to have happened. And I'm glad we're at least checking into it because I think the world is owed an answer and not obfuscation, not, not um, counter accusations. But what happened? And we don't even need to fix the blame. Let's fix the problem and find out what happened so it doesn't happen again. So, Chris, I, I think that, you know, the, the lab incident, most likely, but, but who knows at this point. And I think, Charlie, to your point about the aggression of the CCP, and obviously we've, we've mentioned, we haven't delved into it 100%, but we've touched on before about the CCP's aggression in the South China Sea, the debt diplomacy, the One Belt, One Road initiative, all those aggressive moves. I, do, I don't think that's off topic to mention or dive into that a little bit more, only because it kind of justifies, it kind of lends a motive to why a country might want to cover up a leak that they maybe accidentally initiated. Don, what do you think? I'll go back to my old uh, chemistry days in college. Uh, Chemistry was uh, one of my majors and spent a lot of time in the lab. And uh, accidents in the lab happen. Uh, We've blown things off the ceiling. Uh, pressure built up in an apparatus or something and uh, lab ex- lab accidents in a college environment are certainly different from a controlled environment but the principles would be basically the same pressure builds up you blow uh, and just my experience there would lead me to believe that uh, a leak from the lab uh, is very uh, reasonable and uh and in an environment where you have an accident and you've got people exiting and whatever the virus is or uh, it, there's a pathway for it to exit the controlled area into the open area and then it's on its way. I agree. And uh, we didn't talk about this beforehand. So if anybody's listening, um, this is just Don and I are on the same wavelength here, but this was not planned. But Don just teed up. a a great statistic, and I'll put this in the show notes, um, about lab accidents, that I think the public as a whole may not realize how common they are. So in there's a review that I'm going to put in the show notes of seven years of data of U.S., forget about China, just U.S. BSL-3 and BSL-4 laboratories. In other words, the two highest, uh, most securely rated labs in existence. Seven years of that data in the United States found 749 incidents, including needle sticks, other kinds of through-the-skin exposures, dropped containers, spills, splashes, bites, scratches, all those kind of things, 749 in seven years, and that's in the United States. So take that as you will, but Don, what do you think? I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I don't know if China could do any better, um, but even if they did, and certainly if they did do better, good on them, but 749, you can do better and still be a real threat. I agree. Yeah. I mean, it only takes one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. And it's interesting. So the background 
apparently on the lab leak theory, started with Jameson Faust, the uh, U.S. Consul General in Wuhan, and Rick Switzer, who I guess was the embassy's counselor of environment, science, technology, and health. And in 2018, they wrote a memo together to Washington after repeated visits to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, where they said, and this is a quote, during interactions with scientists at the WIV, the Wuhan Institute of Virology Laboratory, they noted the new lab has a serious shortage of appropriately trained technicians and investigators needed to safely operate this high containment laboratory. I'm no scientist. Don, I would assume that your training and your experience will go a long way in preventing these accidents. So that to me seems to be a pretty credible critique. Truly, but it, it only takes uh, one incident, accident, call it whatever, you dropped a beaker or uh, an overflow or anything that could possibly uh, contaminate. And then is the decontamination, is the containment, does the containment area fail? Or does the decam- decontamination fail? Yeah. Or yeah. did they even do it? Uh, how did there's there's many uh, many venues where you could get an escape? Sure. If it's not if all the procedures aren't followed are in place, and if they aren't followed, uh, you could have a problem. Yeah, and apparently, um, I guess there was a uh, professor Richard Ebright at Rutgers University's Waxman Institute of Microbiology. He said that. Uh, most of the back coronaviruses, or I don't know if he said most, I think he just said back coronaviruses at Wuhan uh, Center for Disease Control and the Wuhan Institute for Virology routinely, this is a direct quote, routinely were collected and studied at BSL-2 laboratories. So not even a BSL-3 or 4. So all that, I, I think we're, we're kind of singing off the same sheet of music. It just seems like, again, there's no smoking gun. There's no hard and fast evidence, which in this kind of incident, I think it's fair to say could be expected because you're dealing with an authoritarian regime that doesn't have an interest in transparency. But that said, the circumstantial evidence I think is significant. One thing, uh, Charlie, before I kick it over to you is I'll just by comparison kind of talk about the lack of evidence for the other two theories in case people think I'm giving them short shrift. So on the natural outbreak from bats in Yunnan province in a Yunnan province mine shaft, Charlie, are you tracking that theory? Did you hear anything about that? Is there anything you know or have any feelings about that one? Chris, that one's new to me. I'm familiar with the wet market one and, of course, the the, the outbreak in the lab. So this one you're talking about is news to me. Okay. So uh, it was news to me, too, because, as I say, this subject has somewhat bored me. So I kind of always skim over it, but I didn't really do a lot of deep dives into it until this week. So – this is one apparently that a lot of people are comfortable with. And by people, I really mean blue check mark Twitter and, and the uh, you know, best and brightest. So where this, com- where this theory comes from is that it's the only theory that actually has um, any hard evidence you can point to. The problem is, is it, as you'll see here, I think the hard evidence kind of get cancels out, uh, gets canceled out when you look at it in the current COVID-19 status and how it could have gotten there. So to back up, in April 2012, uh, six miners were were assigned to clean back guano out of a mine shaft in Yunnan province. Yunnan is about, well, this mine shaft is about the distance from New Orleans to New York from Wuhan. So it's very far away. Um, So in 2012, these miners were assigned there. They ran into some bad bats. 
They uh, three of them died. All of them got very sick. Their blood work was sent to the Wuhan Institute of Virology for testing, and that testing resulted eventually years later in seeing a blood that was uh, seeing that about ninety six percent of the genome from those bats was the same as what we now call COVID-19. Now, 96% is a pretty high number. And again, I had to do a little bit of research to, I'm not this smart to figure this out on my own, but 96% is a pretty high number. That said, humans share a 96% uh, genome match with chimpanzees. So it's not same, same. Um, There is significant differences, but that is the best anyone's been able to put this together and go, um, okay, well, here's the animal it could have come from. So that's where it got its credibility. The problem with the theory, as I see it, is that this is what would have had to happen for it to cause the 2019 outbreak of COVID-19. What would have had to happen is that patient zero down in Yunnan province would have had to immediately leave for Wuhan and could not have touched anyone that would have exhibited symptoms because no symptoms were seen by anyone in Yunnan province until January, 2020, far after we'd already had outbreaks everywhere else in China. So that patient zero would have had to go to Wuhan, somehow not infect anyone on the way, and then suddenly infect someone in Wuhan, and then the outbreak occurs. So that's a pretty big matzo ball of, of, Un, uh, unprobability, disprobability. I don't know what the correct word is for that, but it doesn't seem like that would have been likely. Um, agree, disagree, Don. I, I'm, I'm feeding you softballs here, but off the top of your head, based off what I threw out, do you see any flaws in that? Well, with, without direct uh, information, to me, the biggest is, issue is lack of transparency. And uh, with transparency, uh, you know, you don't, if you don't have something to hide, why hide it? <laughs> and uh, so that would, transparency would go a long way on defining yes or no on that question. I couldn't agree more. And let's get to that. I want to go through one more theory and then I want to get right to that transparency point um, when we talk about the cover up and where that came from. So I, uh, there's no two ways about it. There, I think I think the vested interest that China has in making sure that this, all the second and third order effects of this outbreak don't reverberate to their detriment is is huge. They have a huge vested interest in that. Um, just quickly to dismiss the uh, Wuhan wet market theory, which Charlie, you know, you referred to, and I think all of us probably heard as the most common theory. The biggest problem with that argument is basically they haven't found an infected bat yet. They also haven't found an infected pangolin, which initially people thought, well, the bat could have given it to a pangolin who would have given it to a human. So it was kind of the middleman in that viral transfer, but they didn't find an infected pangolin. They also didn't find a verifiable patient zero from the wet market. They didn't find any evidence that any of the animals at the market were the source of the initial infection, and they didn't find any evidence that any animals at any other wet markets in Wuhan were the source of the initial infection. And another great tell, they couldn't find any animal smugglers who got sick with COVID-19 symptoms prior to the outbreak. So you would have thought that they would have been the initial patient zeros, but they weren't, or I guess not. there's no plural patient zeros. Patient, let's call it zero through 30, whatever. Um, 
So all of those kind of conspire to cast a lot of doubt on that theory as well. So let's just quickly, before we jump into the cover-up part, talk about the possibilities with the lab leak, because this gets a lot of bad, um, it gets a bad rap because it smacks of conspiracy theory. The problem is when you're dealing with an authoritarian government who has a vested interest in not being transparent, it's, it's not a conspiracy theory. It's just a matter of theorizing and going, well, based off the circumstantial evidence we have, what seems most likely? And in this case, it's hard to disprove a lot of the evidence that's kind of being compiled out there. I will say I have a hard time believing that this would be a deliberate release of this virus from the lab. That does not seem like that would have been the way that would have gone because it was unpredictable. The Chinese clearly were not prepared for it. They killed a lot of their own citizens, which as much as they fear their own citizens, it doesn't go to their benefit to kill their citizens, uh, certainly in a way that they can't control. So it doesn't seem like it was a deliberate release, but it's not 100% crazy, I don't think, to speculate if this could have been tied to a potential biological weapon research and that it just accidentally leaked out. Here's what I base that on. And I'm going to give credit where credit's due. I'm getting a lot of this, and I'll put it in the show notes, from National Review's Jim Garrity, who covered all this, everything about COVID-19 from the moment it happened. His reporting has yet to be refuted by anybody. And to our listeners who might be going, well, National Review's a well-known conservative outlet. It is, but it's not OAN. It's not even Fox News. It is pretty transparent and it doesn't, and it's easy to refute them. They're very publicly accessible. This has not been refuted by anybody. And in fact, now we're seeing all the narratives in the mainstream media coming around and endorsing a lot of the stuff that Jim Garrity was reporting on March, April of last year. So I I have a lot of faith in his work and I'm going to link to a bunch of his pieces in the show notes because I I really think he's been um, unjustly uh, ignored and his reporting has really been minimized uh, for much of the past year and, and unduly so. But he points out that in the past, China was known to have a biological weapons program, and we have not been able to confirm if they ever got rid of it. He also cites the head of a Soviet bioweapons program um, from back in the 80s, who in 2000 wrote a book saying that Soviet spies had found two rare viruses, Ebola and Marburg, not far from the Malin nuclear testing facilities and concluded that China was experimenting with bacteriological weapons in the 1980s. The United States never confirmed that, but that's what the Soviets had believed. Then in February, Deputy National Security Advisor Matt Pottinger on Face the Nation said, and this is a direct quote, We have very strong reason to believe that the Chinese military was doing secret classified animal experiments in that same laboratory, WIV, going all the way back to at least 2017. And then ODNI, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, at about the same time said, again, direct quote, for years, the People's Republic of China has collected large healthcare data sets from the U.S. and nations around the globe through both legal and illegal means for purposes only it can control. While no one begrudges a nation conducting research to improve medical treatments, the PRC's mass collection of DNA at home has helped to carry out human rights abuses against domestic minority groups and support state surveillance. The PRC's collection of healthcare data from America poses equally serious risks, not only to the privacy of Americans, but also to the economic and national security of the U.S. 
So I present to you, Don, and this is an unfair question, I admit. Speculate for me. Why would the Chinese government want to collect lots of data about Americans' DNA? I'm not sure. Let me let me go back to your previous comment, though, before we we move okay. on. And is it an accidental or a covert or deliberate release? I've got to believe it's more accidental. If it were a deliberate, it would have been covered by a covert action, and it wouldn't have been traceable back to that region or that lab. And uh, if it was a deliberate covert release, I think they'd done it a little better. 100%. We wouldn't be talking about that. So Couldn't agree there more. is, is I believe it was an accidental release. Yep. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for getting my back on that. I agree. I agree. It's hard for me to see how it would be otherwise. So what do you think though? Does that alarm you or do you think this is just fear mongering? Again, it comes from ODNI, so I'm inclined to give it some respect, but what do you think with the Chinese government collecting all this DNA? I have no direct knowledge. Let me state that up front. I have an opinion. <laughs> right, right. I, uh, I, if they're collecting it, they got a reason to collect it. They're not collecting it just to document it. Uh, so what are they going to use it for would become the, the next question. And then how are they going to use it? And so uh, there's more to it than just collecting it to, to say I've got it or we've got it. Um is there research, potential research? Prop, maybe. Uh, toward what outcome? Take somebody smarter than me in that area to, to figure that one out. But uh, sure. sure. So uh, I guess I, I'm, I, I don't have an answer for you, I guess would be my, my position. And as I said, it's an unfair question because, I mean, I don't know if anybody does. And, but it certainly, I, I think you probably agree with me. It, Certainly warrants more investigation, I would say. Surely. <laughs> right? Um, anyway, Charlie, what do you think? So when you were talking about that collection, it made me immediately think of the OPM breach and when China stole all of the security clearance information on basically everybody in DOD. And my first thought was I wonder if that that collection of the DNA and biometrics data ties in to their biometrics efforts to thwart spying and, and uh, subversion against their own people. So that was the first thing that popped into my head, but it also related to this conversation might have something to do with if you are developing a biological weapon and you do want to unleash it on the world, maybe you're, you're, you're seeing what DNA profile is the most vulnerable in your target organization and maybe you're going to target that as as part of your biological research. So those two things are what I thought of, Chris. Either some type of biometrics collection to for their counterintelligence efforts, or maybe it's something a little more nefarious. Yeah, and and as as Don said, I mean, you know, without us knowing, it's kind of all fair game. You know, if you're just going to stonewall, then we have to, you know, I mean, we we know some of the overtly evil things that China has done. We we have to assume the worst because you're not giving us any alternative and, and transparency has been an issue. And Don, that leads me back to what you brought up before. So the transparency piece, the cover-up, as it were. So China, 100%, without any further investigation, we have plenty of evidence of how China lied, obfuscated, uh, misled the world about both the outbreak the effects of the outbreak and, um, you know, from, from 
paying off the WHO to actually go into the steps to weld their own citizens into buildings to make sure that people couldn't be reported being seen with, with the outbreak, that they were still locked in the building so they could contain the outbreak in there. Um, I mean, truly despicable things. Uh, what are your thoughts? I mean, knowing what you know about uh, and what you've read, how, how does that strike you and, and where, where does that lead you? What, what's the, now that we know this, what does that make us, what should we be thinking about as Americans? Simple. Simplistically, uh, you'd say uh, dangerous people do dangerous things. Are, are, you know, you you put them in a corner, they're going to come out some way, and uh, they're striking out at their own people, in effect, to a lot of this. And uh, the lack of transparency just would breed more of that to me. More, more uh, distrust. More. Uh, more questions than answers. And uh, the people that are suffering most from that are the, the Chinese people in and around that area. I hope, and obviously I have no knowledge of this at all, I hope deeply that we can find common cause with the Chinese people to overthrow that government um, for, the, for the things that have been wreaked on them. Um, I, I'll list just a couple things in, ca- in case anybody thinks I'm bloviating or overstating the case. But when uh, Dr. Li Wenliang initially started to talk openly about uh, COVID, the Wuhan Public Security Bureau accused him of, quote unquote, spreading rumors. And then two days later at a police station, Dr. Li signed a statement acknowledging his misdemeanor and promising not to commit further, quote unquote, unlawful acts. He's the one that got off light. There were seven other people, medical professionals, people with potential insider knowledge who were arrested on similar charges. No one knows where they are. And then on top of it, on January 3rd, 2020, China's National Health Commission ordered its institutions not to publish any information related to COVID-19. And they ordered their labs to transfer any samples they had they had to either designated testing institutions or to destroy them. Um, and you can read into that what you will. But I think there's a um, a confluence of, of truly despicable acts that, that the Chinese government, that we know the Chinese government engaged in. And we know because nobody knows anything about the outbreak. And China has really covered that up. China, uh, Charlie, I'm going to ask you a another unfair question because this is what I do. What what should we hold? How do we hold China accountable for this? What, what, if you're president tomorrow, and I know that's an unfair question, but I mean, what what should we do? What's the what's a worthwhile step for us? That's actually something I've been thinking about for a while because it seems obvious to me at this point that whatever happened. China's more afraid of the truth than all the lies that they're putting out. And I think that they're counting on the short attention span that not only Americans, but the rest of the world has. And the kind of the jubilation that this is kind of ending for us to just kind of let it go. Uh, But I don't think the world's going to let that happen. And I hope they don't. I think the best way for the CCP to be held accountable is by their own people. And I would like their people to, to be able to to demand answers and to go after the government in, in an appropriate way for whatever it is that happened. And I was sitting here listening to you and dad talk about the obfuscation and the, the integrity of the, the situation. I just kind of wonder why the decision wasn't there immediately to say, okay, hey, we messed up. 
something happened. Here is all, everything we know. Here is the, the DNA. Here's the strain. Here's what happened. Here's where it, we first reported. Because if they had done that, then we might have been able to, to save a whole bunch of lives. Because I was thinking that in addition to the, the WHO saying, hey, this this isn't that bad or, hey, don't blame China or whatever, whatever they were on. I remember politicians from both parties in our own country earlier in this 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 pandemic saying, hey, don't it's not that big a deal. I remember Nancy Pelosi telling people to go down to Chinatown um, right. on California. Right. I remember uh, the early days, uh, President Trump saying, hey, well, this isn't that bad. And then we found out it was. Right. So I think right. th- things could have been a lot different. A lot of lives could have been saved. A lot of Chinese lives could have been saved, much less the rest of the world, if there would have been a lot of more forthright and some integrity at, at the beginning of the process. Don, did you? Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yes, and it's it's sort of simplistic, but it's uh, you know the the cover ups often more uh, damning than the crime. Oh, right. And I think that's what they've gotten caught up in here. If if they would have come forward and said, we had an accident, uh, here's what we know, and here's how the nations of the world can best protect themselves, uh, would be a different, we'd be talking about different things today. Don, did you ever, did you ever study China, either professionally or on your own? Was that ever a, a subject of interest just to kind of figure out more about China and its history and its Culture was that ever a subject of interest? No, it wasn't an issue with with me or you know that was twenty years ago. Now uh, China's come a long way in in the last twenty years I, since I was active in the intelligence community. Sure, yeah, I was reading a uh, a book the other day, so I went to a, a used bookstore a while back, and I uh, I love going there, and I end up buying more books than I should. But I bought a book. Um, I think it's literally just called the Chinese Secret Service. And it was written by a reporter who is identified as a London-based reporter, but he wrote it under a pseudonym because he still was working out of out of Hong Kong, I believe. And this was in the – he wrote this book in the mid-70s. But it's interesting because with the lack of knowing what we now know and how China has progressed since the mid-70s, it's interesting um, – to uh, it just a really interesting book, but um, it got me very interested in, in China, and I am by no means an expert on anything, including even what I've read in the book. But uh, but I it it one of the points that I took away from it was China's essentially informal agreement with its or social contract with its people, which was essentially we will make you safe. And we will start to build a middle class for you. In exchange, you give us all of your rights. And to my way of thinking, that explains a lot of the cover-up here. And again, I'm not an expert on this, so I'm not saying this with any sort of authority. I'm trying to regurgitate what I read. But my sense is that would explain a lot of the cover-up going on here. And if the crime itself, if the outbreak itself is linked to any sort of um, biometric data, like Charlie pointed out, their fear of the Chinese people and of losing the trust of the Chinese people, because all the Chinese people have to do when you're dealing with 3 billion people in that country is go, hey, you know something, you're breaking the social contract. You're not keeping us safe. And we feel scared. You're welding us in buildings. And it's not worth it to surrender our rights and to to have you tell us everything we can do and build a social credit system and all the rest of that. If you can't even keep us safe. Am I crazy? Is, do you think there's another, uh, another aspect to that, Don, or does that kind of track? Well, I, I, 
more simplistically, I, I really believe that there's a tipping point, uh, and many theories have that. And where is the tipping point uh, for the Chinese Communist government and the Chinese people? Um, is this it? Probably not. Is it a step toward the tipping point? Maybe. So uh, I guess that's the way I would I would try to I like characterize that. that. Yeah, I like that. I want to shift gears slightly and leave COVID just uh, really for, for the time being, because I, there's another thing that, Don, I want to talk about specifically with you um, based off your life and what you've done. And it, it ties back into what Charlie brought up before about Chinese aggression. So as we know, and Charlie, I think we've talked about this before, China you know, has a great PR campaign on its behalf. Um, it Hollywood is scared to death of it. And uh, movies need to be released in China and often are done so through the approval of Chinese censors. So I found it interesting this week when John Cena, the former WWE wrestler and now movie star, um, apologized in a TikTok video to China and to the Chinese people in Mandarin. He apologized to them for calling Taiwan a country. And it was about a minute-long TikTok. And my my personal interest in this, Don, and what I, what I wanted to throw out to you, it, it just as a, as a concept, and we can relate this to John Cena or take it in another direction, but to me, what, what struck me was the cognitive dissonance of seeing John Cena, who in his movies, you know, is big and muscular and the good guy and smashing up people and a tough guy that can do anything. What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, uh, falling on his knees and begging forgiveness from the CCP and from the Chinese people for calling, having, having the gumption to call Taiwan a country. And I thought, boy, there's an interesting moral here about the lack of moral courage that can come from a musclehead. And that when you are professionally supposed to be a tough guy, and yet you are visibly seen to lack a certain moral courage. I wondered, and Don, I wanted to throw this to you because you've certainly, as I always say, you know, you've, you've jocked up a lot in your life. And I thought, talk to me about courage. In your in your opinion, is there only one kind of courage? If you're if you're courageous, you're just courageous across the board, or can you be selectively courageous? Yeah, you're physically courageous. If you're in a boxing ring, you're tough. But morally, you know, you cheat on your wife. You'll you know, uh, you know, I don't know, be morally weak and gamble or be addicted to things. You know, talk to me about just your general thoughts about what it takes to be a courageous man and how that plays out in our society. Well, simplistically, it, uh, it, to me, it all boils down to doing what's right. It's just simple. What do you do next? Do the next right thing. And determining what's right is what we're talking about here. Uh, and to me, it all comes back to self-determination. The people have des- decided they don't want to be a part. A certain group of people have decided they're not going to be a part of the uh, of China, if you will, and uh, have been that way for quite a while. And don't they have the right to do that? You know, we we could argue about our history and self-determination there, and and. Uh, but it seems like to me uh, that the argument gets muddled, polluted, 
and lost in a lot of these that I hear about the fact that they have chosen or would like to choose not to be a part of China. Now, what would we do if uh, Florida wanted to leave the union, <laughs> become its own state? I don't know. That would be an interesting, but uh, but there are a, a group of people there that have been uh, discriminated against, if you will, uh, and they they have chosen a path towards self-determination, in my opinion. Now, how will that work over time? You would hope it would be uh, something peaceful and productive for both parties. That would be the target. Sure. But uh, forced integration here of uh, back into the, the greater China, mm-hmm. is it going to work? I don't know. Is it going to cause more uh, strife? Probably. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how it, it would turn out without occupation and forced uh, compliance on sure. Taiwan's part. Sure. So, so that's not very philosophical. That's more no, practical no, no. answer to the question. I, I, I know, and it's and it geopolitically, I couldn't agree with you more. I think there's so many known unknowns when it comes to how that's going to play out with Taiwan and where that fits into China's overall pattern of aggression. I think what I'm where I'm going with this is, and it's a hard gear shift um, because I'm pivoting really from geopolitics to a more to yeah that more philosophical point of looking at John Cena as kind of someone who is you know kind of your your prototypical American male. Uh, writ large, you know, big muscles, good looking guy, movie star, tough guy up on screen trying to do the right thing, but then wilts like a wallflower in, in the face of China, you know, somebody or somebody at the movie studios saying, hey, apologize to China for calling Taiwan a country. And I, in many ways, I see that as a parallel for a lot of the United States now that we look the part, but we don't always act the part. And, and that just got me kind of on that philosophical trend of wondering about courage. And from somebody that's done a lot of courageous things like you, I just wondered, you know, what do you think about – so I'm using the John Cena thing as a setup. Um, but just in general, when it comes to courage, in your experience, how do you think that plays out? What, what should be our takeaways? That I mean, it's easy to say always do the right thing. I think John Cena or somebody like him would argue, well, hey, the right thing is for me to keep starring in movies. And if I have to apologize to China about some geopolitical issue I don't know anything about, then the right thing is to apologize to them. Um, So talk to me about what the obligations are uh, to be courageous. What does it take to be courageous in many facets of your life, not just look the part? Well, my thoughts on the corporate world are, you know, we see apology tours uh, constantly here lately. Uh, if you believed in what you said the first time, why are we seeing people on apology tour? Is it sponsors are, are moving away? Is it pressure from the networks? Or is it pressure, pressure from what? Why are we seeing these apology tours? And to see a CEO or a senior official in a company stand up and, well... And the apologies are never distinct and absolute. I'm, we made a mistake on this. It's say, well, maybe we should have done, and you know, and, and 
that to me is uh, personally irritating. Either stand up for what you said or apologize in a serious, meaningful manner. Uh, and but I'm not sure that's where you're talking about with some of this. Uh, no, um, but I, I, I am. I'm going in, in big looping circles here, so I, I don't blame you for not totally being able to follow. That's exactly what I mean. Yeah, that's that's exact. You're exactly on point. But it 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 bothers me to see these things on TV. It just stand up for what you really believe, not what the crowd is forcing you upon you. And uh, I, I see the uh, the apology tour is is just a wave back and forth. Uh, you go one way and that doesn't work, and I apologize. Now I'll go another way, and I'll I'll have to make an apology there and. Uh, corporate especially uh, bothers me to see that. How do you run a business yeah. with yeah. any uh, stability if you're going to get jerked around by the whims of the masses in the media or or some other uh, group that is uh, trying to dictate or impose their thought on you or their it, thought or standards? Yeah, it seems like there's a down. It's the downside of empathy that if you're trying to empathize with other people, a lot of times. You don't even know what you're apologizing for. You're just going, I'm sorry you feel bad, but you can't articulate what exactly got them upset or whether or not they should be upset um, or whether it's worth making them upset over it. That courage and empathy seem like sometimes they're on opposite ends of the spectrum. Does that make well, sense? I, I agree with that. And and I think it's it generates friction in this lack of I don't know, certainty or lack of consistency or whatever within the community. I'm, I'm going to throw something out here. I'm, I'm just kind of thinking this out loud. Tell me if you agree with this. But to me, the problem with empathy is you are never going to be somebody else. So to try to empathize with their circumstances, while that can have some utility, is always going to be a futile effort. So the best thing to do is just set a standard set of expectations for how you deal with people and expect people and, and then you know have that as your as your grading stick that people will have to measure up to and that that's how you conduct your business in a consistent ethical moral manner and don't worry as much about empathy because to try to put yourself and into someone else's shoes to the extent that you're abdicating all rational thought on your own part seems to me a losing proposition. Does that make sense? Am I, am I off? Well, on that? I, I agree with consistency, especially if it was good before the protesters sh- showed up, show up on your doorstep. Is it not good the day, the next day? Yeah. Uh, now that's not to say you can't change and improve and all that. But we we've gone far beyond that, I think, at this point in our sure. in our nation. Sure, Charlie, jump in. Well, what do you think? So I think it's it's very interesting, and I was I was disappointed but not surprised by by John Cena's actions. But I also want to potentially give him credit for for being smart about this. For example, if you believe that all publicity is good publicity. He just got a whole bunch of free publicity by doing this. For example, we wouldn't be talking about John Cena on the show if he hadn't done what he just did with China. Regarding whether or not Taiwan's own country, I certainly think of it personally as a country. If you look up Wikipedia, I think in the first sentence it says Taiwan is a country 
located in, in Asia. If you look at the CIA fact book, it describes Taiwan as a country. We think about Taiwan as a country because we want to protect its sovereignty and independence, but it's complicated. Its State Department considers uh, they have one, one state uh, policy, one China policy that involves the mainland and Taiwan. So it gets really, really complicated. I just, I don't, uh, at a personal level, think it's good practice to, to have this type of groveling that we kind of saw from Mr. Cena. Um, I, I was impressed that he was able to apologize in Mandarin. I, I know his Mandarin was really good. I know. I, I guess. I mean, I'm impressed. I, yeah, I have no yeah. idea what he said. Sounded good um, to but, me. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think that, that showing weakness in this type of thing internationally and at an individual level just encourages more Attacks. I think that I don't think he was technically wrong by saying Taiwan's own country. Certainly, the Taiwanese think of themselves as as an independent country. Um, I would like to see less apologizing and more just going out and doing things. But again, maybe this was a deliberate process. He's like, hey, you know, if you apologize, not only will this be big news in China where you're trying to sell your movies, it'll be big news here in America. Everyone will be talking about you. They won't be talking nice about you, but at least you're getting some free publicity. Yeah, and I think I think. I mean, my, my last takeaway on the John Cena thing itself is just the veto power that China seems to have over our culture is profound. And I find that troubling as an American that has been privileged enough to grow up in a country that has not been highly leveraged by other countries. It is jarring to me to see Americans, as you said, have to grovel for permission uh, to express themselves or to walk back what they said because of another country's offense. That to me is, is troubling and, and not a promising sign for us. Yeah. And, and I was thinking when you were talking with dad earlier, most of us have been focused either on the, the Russia threat or something in the Middle East kicking off. And for me, it's, it's relatively recent that I've really started studying China considering the Pacific threat. But they are they are creeping up and they're ever able to leverage and unafraidly, un, unabashedly leverage things like Chinese identity, like using their students, like using their non-government organizations in ways that the American government typically doesn't. And when you're talking about their impact on Hollywood, I remember when they remade Red Dawn. The original yeah, sure. Red Dawn was one of the movies that made me want to join the army. It was that platoon and aliens. And uh, I, I remember going to the, the remake with How's that with worked Hayek. out, by the way, Charlie? <laughs> I mean, it, it worked. I haven't, I haven't fought any space aliens yet, but uh, it's, Two it's out been of three okay. Bad. Yeah, right. I got you. Yeah. Um, but when they remade it, and originally it was going to be the, the Chinese, you know, in the, in the first yeah. one, I think it was uh, some South Americans, uh, Cubans. No, Russians were, or Cubans, that's right. Yeah. Russians and yeah. Cubans. Right. Um, and it was going to be the Chinese this time, which is more plausible than the North Koreans. You know, North Koreans are going to, they can't even feed their own army and they're going to invade America. Right. Don't buy it. But that was because China, China was like, hey, if you're going to make us the bad guys, you're not going to be able to show your movies. Not only this one, but every other one your studio is going to produce. That's powerful. Yeah, and it's it's an example of the soft coercive power that they have, and they they're doing more and more of that with like we talked about several times here on this show and others with the Belt and Road, with spreading all that money around, and now they're about to build a, a big airstrip in I think it's Kiribati, which is puts their bombers within range of Hawaii. That's uh, there's a lot of scary things going on with China right now, Chris. Yeah, and that that and you're right, Charlie. Among the many episodes that we have still to do is, is a proper assessment of China and the Chinese threat. Um, I'll, I'll 
by, by one last takeaway, and Don, I'm going to throw this back to you because this is something uh, with your background in intelligence I, I thought was uh, – I don't know. I, I thought it was interesting when I read this in that same book about the Chinese Secret Service that apparently in Chinese, the characters that that they use for intelligence uh, essentially means self-education. I thought that's a brilliant way of thinking about intelligence, that to be an intelligence officer is to be involved in self-educating about whatever that problem set is. I don't, I don't know, something about just kind of, I, I thought was interesting. Well, I, I, thinking about that, I guess I would have somewhat have to agree. <laughs> you know, if you're, if you're going to deal with an issue, you need to understand the issue understand the threats, the pluses and minuses, if you will, and be able to assess that against whatever you're trying to protect, whether it be our secrets, our technology, our infrastructure, whatever it is. Uh, so maybe that's a different or good way to look at the problem. Yeah, I, th- I thought it was interesting. Now, listen, I wanted to use that to segue to your article Tell me about the unconventional way that you found. <laughs> oh, well, uh, Charlie twisted my arm, and I finally wrote that article. And and uh, and uh, it it is true uh, that uh, I walked on to special forces. Uh, the Army had a set of orders telling me to report to 18th Airborne Corps Repo Depot. I met a special forces officer at a short course in Huachuca. I'd done my infantry detail and was moving now back to be an intel officer. They sent me to a short course, and there was a special forces officer there that was taking the same short course. And I was going to Bragg, and he was at Bragg, and I told him I was there. And he said, well, why don't you come join us? And I said, well, my orders are replacement detachment. And... uh said, you don't need to do that. <laughs> Just go over to JFK Center and sign in, and they'll keep you. Young senior lieutenant, he was a captain, been around a lot longer. Okay. And I did that. And signed in to JFK Center, and they looked at my orders and sent me on down to B Company 2nd Battalion of the 5th. And it took about Three months before 18th Airborne Corps came looking for me. <laughs> and I don't know what happened, but whether JFK gave them a next in- inbound, I was a senior lieutenant then, or they just gave up and fighting over it and went on their way, but I got to stay. That was, that was the beginning. So anyone working at the JFK Special Warfare Center that starts to see a lot of unsolicited soldiers <laughs> come walking through your gates... Don Faint is the one you can blame for that. Take up all I'm, your complaints with them. I'm not sure you get by with it today. Uh, <laughs> you know, nobody hand carries their records anymore. It's true. It's true. It was a, it was a really funny article. I really enjoyed that. Tell I I I don't want to leave it though without asking about the broken leg. That's a hell of a story. Um, do you want to just briefly run that down for a second? Because that that's worth well, sharing. It was a jump accident. We we uh, battalion went to desert training just about every year. And we did a lot of it at 29 Palms, California. And, uh, you know, the Army doesn't pay if you jump in. So we had to, we would always go fly out there and jump in and the Air Force got their training. And uh, we were doing that for second or third year, I guess, when we 
And I was a jump master for that jump. And uh, we had a lot of equipment. It was loaded. It was hot. We'd been in that 130 forever. And uh, we came in, jumped, you know, and cleared the, the airplane. The jump master, I was last out and got the thumbs up, you know, procedurally. The other door was open. I jumped. That took a bit of time, and on the drop zone we were jumping on was an old range. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know, you find find your soft place out there, and don't don't find a piece of metal sticking up. And I found me a soft place, but it was way over the hill. Uh, turned into it. We were jumping steerables, and uh, I I got pretty low, and all of a sudden I see a square outline in the sand. And there's nothing square in nature. And all of a sudden, it hit me. It's a foundation for a building, <laughs> concrete foundation. I, well, I, I did some gymnastics and made the parachute move and missed the building. In doing so, I did the worst PLF I think I've ever done. I broke my leg. And uh, I was over a hill and, you know, the typical assembly and all. Uh, mm -hmm. And I always, first, first jumper, Normally got a copy of the manifest when I was jump master, and I had a copy. When the hustle and bustle of getting there, I didn't give the guy a manifest. So they didn't have a manifest, couldn't do manifest call. And finally, they realized that the jump master wasn't there. And uh, they went looking for me. And finally, a Jeep came down, and one of my best buddies jumped out and uh, looked at me and uh, and called for a scream for the medics to come. And he looked at me and said, we're going to medevac you from here. So the, the, the local helicopter that they had out there was called to come get me. And it came in and I'm sitting there watching it and he almost crashed. And he almost lands on you, right? He almost, <laughs> he hit on the stinger and went forward and the blades almost hit the ground. Jesus. So, you know, the story here and the legs hurting like everything, they put me on the helicopter. They had a big overweight Air Force guy that was the crew chief, he kicked my leg on the way to the hospital. So I was twice. So that felt great. Yeah, that's awesome. And they they get me off the helicopter at their at their little hospital they had out. Almost dumped me on the ground off the stretcher. So I'm really in chair form, and they go in and they finally uh, put me on an exam table. And uh, doctor finally came and trying to get my boot off. Hurt like everything. So, uh, and they finally got it off. He started trying to, we, had, we were jumping in those old style uh, jungle fatigue camis mm. that issued us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, he starts rolling it. Uh, and I told him, cut it. I told him about three times to cut them. And he said, I'm not going to cut your uniform. <laughs> I reached back on my hip. I had a folding buck and a, you know, a sheath. Took that out, inserted it on the inseam of my trousers, and went all the way down in one stroke. They they took my knife, and I was disarmed by a an Air Force doctor and a nurse, so I could never leave that down. <laughs> Their eyes, when I put put the knife in the pants and went down the inseam, the eyes got big and they jumped back. I was not in the mood to, for them to fool my leg anymore. I, I like the cost consciousness that the doctor had, that he's not going to cut your uniform. That, that kind of bottom line fiscal responsibility sorely needed in the military. What a great response. 
Only an Air Force doctor would have said that. <laughs> really? Back then, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear it was just him, and that was abnormal even for that time. I didn't know if maybe then they were – that's how people thought, that like the uniform was – you know, that they were thinking about costs or, or some kind of peacetime. But, but they were issue. they were these uniforms that we would never wear in garrison that we had on, you know. Right, right, Cut right. It. Dear God, uh, that's hilarious. So I'm sorry. The image I had when I was reading this was uh, not not as an insult to you, but it's just the amount of incidents that happen from the from the moment you left the plane all the way to actually getting in the hospital and dealing with everything that you dealt with there. It was like uh, I don't know if you ever saw Hot Shots. Charlie bagged me up on this. You ever see Hot Shots when the when the pilot gets ejected from the plane and then he's fine but they take him into the ambulance and like the ambulance, like knocks him all over the back of the ambulance. They slam his head into a door. They like crack his leg in one of the uh, uh, automatic doors in the hospital. Like he just gets beat up on the ride on the, on the, all the transpo back to the hospital. And that was kind of the images in my mind. It was like, you had one thing after another where the chopper almost lands on you. Then all these events happening. And it just seemed like a comedy of errors. Not so funny because you're in agonizing pain and you got a, a busted leg. But um, but in hindsight, it, it just seemed like, man, they really were not well-equipped to deal with that. <laughs> when, when they finally got me back and settled down and in a bed uh, over in the barracks we were staying in, it it became funny. And, uh, <laughs> and also, uh, I was – I think that was my jump for master. Or, oh, really? And – Day later or something, they rolled in a keg of beer that I paid oh, for, right. put it at, yeah. the, at the foot of my bed, and we had a party. <laughs> and by the way, how's the leg now? I mean, is the leg fine? Did it yeah. heal? Yeah. That's yeah. A great. So they did a good it, job, all that aside. They said well, I was I was laid up for about eight months, I guess. And sure. The first jump coming back after that was an interesting jump for me. But uh yeah, but other bet. than that, everything's fine. I bet. I bet. What was the first jump back? Was it just a standard static line or was it? Yeah. And, okay. but it was anything that could go wrong would go wrong in oh, your brain really? as you go oh, over. Oh yeah. Yeah. I yeah, was yeah. really concerned that I'd favor the, the left leg and end up hurting the other one. Uh, For sure. And, uh, the whole time coming down feet and knees together Yeah. and uh, go with it. Did you practice a bunch before that first jump back? Did you try to get uh, the muscle the, memory we, back? A few off the, you know, the steps or the yeah, yeah. few pre-jump PLFs, and that was really about it. Gotcha, gotcha. I'd been yeah. running for a, for a little while before that, so it was getting better. You were trusting the leg a little bit more at that point. Yeah. yeah. Um, Charlie, what's going on with Second Mission? Well, as you know, we published the, the we got the first book, The Hill, which is was gonna it's out for pre-publication. Really excited about that. And of course, you know, my mom and dad are, are big funders for it, and I appreciate their their funding for Second Mission. But I'm looking forward to getting more involved in it. You know, we had great plans a year or two ago to do these writer workshops, stuff you and I have talked about offline doing. And now that the code restrictions are lifted, we're, we're really looking forward to doing that, getting some writers together, helping some vets find their second mission after military service. So that's what we're going to do in the next couple of months, see where we are, what we can do. Now that we got some books going, we can we can help some more authors and we can get some more folks published, help their stories get out. And like you and I have talked about a number of times, Chris, just telling your story can be so therapeutic. And that's why it's so important for 
vets to, to get it out there. And combat vets like the three of us on this podcast are going to become fewer and fewer. If you look at a, a, an active duty formation right now, you might have battalion commander, sergeant major, maybe down to the company. But those junior officers and NCOs, they don't, they don't have any experience in there. These, these things are drying up. So it's important to get this stuff down in writing to help inspire the new generation, but also to help them with some experiential learning. So if they break their leg on a jump, now they know what to do. If they, you know, if they, if they, <laughs> um, if they want to yeah. find their way in the special forces, they got some options. So we got to, we got to get <laughs> or, those stories out there. Or if they're an Air there. Force doctor that's wondering if they're allowed to cut a uniform, <laughs> you know, might be a lesson learned there. I don't think that doctor will ever wait again. He'll <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> find quicker. <laughs> Um, you know, and uh, Charlie, first off, is the Hill out now? Is that uh, up and available? It's, it's out. It's, it's on Amazon for pre-order. So Aaron okay. and I've been working, working hard. Aaron Kirk, the author, been working hard out there. Yeah. So they look at, okay. look at the Hill. Um, it's a memoir of the, the war in Afghanistan by a Marine vet. So it's out there. It's ready to go. And I think gotcha. Chris, I'd like to talk to you uh, later about getting Aaron on the show. He's he's a yeah, fascinating sure. guy to talk to, even oh, though yeah. he's a marine. Yeah. I, I yeah. think we can we can. Oh, right, yeah. right, we right. had a marine on the show before. We haven't yet. No, I don't think no. so. We haven't wanted to go there yet. But that's good. <laughs> yeah. Aaron, Aaron will be the right guy to, to to be the test jumper on that and see how many more marines we can get on the show. That's right. That'll be a good. One. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. No, that okay. that'll be awesome. Uh, okay. So let me just under let me just foot stomp and underscore this for Charlie. To everyone listening, because we've been talking about The Hill for a couple weeks now, it is out there. It's on Amazon. So go down to the show notes, click on it, pre-order it. Um, it's out there. So that's worth saying. So um, people can actually go now and see what uh, Charlie's been uh, promising us for a while now. So it's a big day. That's that's actually really important stuff. Um, Don, were we going to talk about anything? I can't remember if we had something else that we were going to talk about. I don't think we got we covered most of what we wanted to I, say. I think I think we did, right? Okay, well listen, Don, Charlie, thank you guys for being here. Hey, thanks, Chris. And always great to be on the show and appreciate you having my dad on and uh looking forward to doing it again at some point. I I, I don't think it's gonna be long before we have every member of the faint family on this show. <laughs> and and that's not and that's not just purely nepotism, let's stipulate. That's actually because Charlie and his family are not just awesome people, but are super interesting people and that bring an awful lot to uh, that and, and have voices I think deserve to be heard. So it's always a pleasure. And Don, thanks a million for being here. You're quite welcome. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, uh, it was my pleasure. Now, listen to everybody else. If you haven't already, subscribe. And if you're on iTunes, leave us a review, please. In as well as we always say every week. You can leave us a review and say whatever you want. If you don't mind attaching it to a five-star review, regardless of how laudatory or negative your comment is, we'd appreciate it. Um, five-star reviews are always welcome. The show notes. So I've plugged the show notes a couple times throughout this episode. Please go check them out. They're at theweeklyhavoc.podbean.com. Again, that's theweeklyhavoc.podbean.com. But also, if you are... Looking at Havoc Journal, which you should be. If you're getting the show from there, you will see that I have a whole article that accompanies those show notes. So we have show alibis where any brain farts I had, anything I misstated, uh, didn't provide enough context for, anything that needs further clarification, I'll address that in the show alibis. Um, 
We try to throw a couple jokes in there. So we try to make it worth your while to read. So you got the show alibis. You have the show notes. Check them out. Anywhere you're listening to this podcast, you will see the show notes attached to whatever platform it is that you're listening to it on. Or you can check it out at theweeklyhavoc.podbean.com. As always, thanks to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to Don and Charlie Faint. And we'll see you next time for The Weekly Havoc. Hey, thanks a million for doing this, by the way. Oh, you're quite welcome. I, I, mean, think, uh, I think Charlie volunteered me, so. Uh. <laughs> I'll take it. He is my booker, he, and, and, and he, is, he, is, uh, he, he frequently rounds up people against their will to come on the show, but it always seems to work out pretty well. Well, I think this is a get, a get even for those uh, Charlie go cut the grass days. <laughs>